Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we learn more about British cheese. You know, I think people get into cheese from many different avenues and in many different ways, but there's something quite infectious about cheese. Also in the programme, we considered the benefits of non-alcoholic spirits. Plus, we venture to Vienna, where soybeans are having a moment. We built a field with real soybeans, and it was basically like a field. So you had the soybeans, you had a little bench where you could sit and watch the field grow. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. When you think of the world's best cheeses, Britain doesn't usually come to mind. Italians have their soft burratas and buttery parmesans, and France is known worldwide for its rich, sticky breeze and camembert. By comparison, store-bought British cheddar isn't up there with the greats. However, there has been a renaissance in the quality and range of cheese being made in the UK. The country now has more than 200 small cheesemakers, and many of them are winning awards and accolades on the international stage. Experts in fromagerie Matthew Carver and Patrick McGuigan have dedicated their careers to boosting the profile of the most delicious British wheels. In their new book, The Cheese Life, they have succeeded in highlighting the scene's newly found fortune. I sat down with Matthew and Patrick in the studio at Midori House to find out more about why they, and many people beside, are so into cheese that their passion borders on obsession. I think for me it's the passion... You know, I think people get into cheese from many different avenues and in many different ways, but there's something quite infectious about cheese and especially good, well-made cheese. And I think soon, soon after people start, they get, they get infected by that passion for cheese. How, how did you get started? Originally, I, I came from it more in terms of wanting to create the perfect grilled cheese sandwich less so than the aspect of really loving cheese. But then quite soon after, I think the the stories of producers and the people that make these incredible cheeses around the UK, really that's what, what got me hooked into, into cheese. Patrick, what's your take on what makes cheese interesting and turns somebody into an obsessive? And are you one? Oh, completely and utterly. I've devoted the past 15 years of my life to visiting cheesemakers, cheesemongers, Traveling all around the world, you know, to, to learn more about this amazing food stuff that has a history going back 8,000 years. And I think that's one of the reasons once you get into cheese, it's never ending what you can learn. It's such a wonderful food that encapsulates place, particularly. So, you know, people talk about terroir in wine, but cheese has got that in abundance. I mean, with wine, you make one vintage a year. With cheese, you make a vintage every day. And from day to day, depending on what the animals are eating, what the weather's like, where they are in the season, the cheese will change. So it's endlessly fascinating and complex. And as Matthew said, in the UK, which is where I sort of, I'm a journalist and, and started writing about cheese about 15 years ago and started to meet these incredible producers making genuinely world-class cheese, you know, What we wanted to do with the book is, because we live this weird world of cheese, you know, and people are always fascinated, you know, you work in cheese, you write about cheese, you've got a cheese restaurant. People always want to know about it. People love cheese, not mm. in a way that is different to other foods. It's not love, actually. Like, Matthew, I remember you saying, it's like an obsession. Yeah, yeah. And people are just crazy about cheese. So 
and, and not just people who are eating it, but in the industry as well. This is full of amazing characters, really interesting people from different backgrounds. It's quite a diverse sort of community. It is a community of cheesemongers, cheesemakers, people who mature the cheese, people who sell it, people who cook with it, people who write about it. And we wanted to try and encapsulate that. So like Matthew said, it's not just a recipe book, although it is. It's stuffed full of incredible recipes from Matthew's restaurants. But it's trying to capture the cheese life, you know. So there's interviews with cheesemongers and cheesemakers about what do they do all day? You know, if you work in a cheese cave, what exactly are you doing in a cheese cave? So we've got stuff on that. And, and you know, what's it like to judge at the World Cheese Awards when you're tasting four and a half thousand cheeses in one day not individually yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how big a mouthful oh. are you taking because very, that is quite something very small mouthfuls that's yeah. the secret yeah, yeah. Um, so so within the book as well as the recipes there's there's essays there's things about matching with with drinks there's deep dives into cheddar you know there's a whole i did a whole essay on sort of cheddar so hopefully and i think you know it's brought that our life our world um, you know, brought it to life. I think also you said at the beginning about making it fun and accessible. That's something we're both quite passionate mm. about, is that it's not stuffy. You know, sometimes I feel with wine, for example, you can feel a bit intimidated. And there is there can be an element of that with cheese, people kind of lecturing you about different cheese. Stuff, and that's not what we're interested yeah. in. One of the other things that you mentioned in the introduction to the book is that you chronicle this very interesting time in British food culture as well, where this cheese kind of culture came to the fore and it was representative of a wider thing in terms of how the taste of the country was changing. Um, but I wonder, because, as you said, cheese is so linked to territory in a similar way to wine, what do you think British cheese tells us about Britain? And what does British cheese tell us about the British people who make it? I've always got theories. I did a book previously looking at cheese history um, called The Philosophy of Cheese, and there's sections in there on the UK. And I think as a country we lost our way with food after the Second World War. That was partly to do with things like rationing, where the country was on a kind of war footing and food became more industrialised. There were only five types of cheese allowed to be made all the way up to 1954. Basically, it was mass-produced cheddar to feed the nation and then we had the rise of the supermarkets and then we had sort of fixed prices for milk which meant farmers didn't really make cheese they just sold the milk all of that meant in the 60s and 70s we lost a lot of our traditional food culture which was there pre-war in a way that France and Italy didn't you know they they, they didn't have rationing to the same extent they didn't have the rise of the supermarkets and industrialization in the same way but there's been this kind of renaissance and I think it's part of a bigger thing of better restaurants, better coffee, better bread, you know, good chocolate. And cheese is part of that Britain sort of, I suppose, travelling more, going on holiday to places like Spain and Italy and France and coming back and saying, wow, I had some amazing food, I want that here. Farmers' markets. So cheese is all part of that thing. Yeah, and I think one thing that I've definitely noticed over the last few years as well with cheesemakers is lots of new, younger, you know, sons, daughters of, of the family have come back. And I think they've come back from studying at, you know, university in cities or, or bigger towns and have come back with a, a new kind of entrepreneurial mindset and been like, 
producing milk is not a viable business model for a farm anymore and let's let's try and add value to our milk by creating cheese and that's that's happened a lot I just want to talk about I guess one of my gripes as an Italian in Britain sometimes is that there is a tendency to think that if you just slap a lot of cheese on top of something then it's gonna taste good so How do you and and I don't think that's the case because cheese needs to be good it needs to be cooked with properly. So the question is how do you cook with cheese properly in a way that does honor to the cheese itself and it's not just a cop out to make your middle mid-range mid bolognese into something yeah. that actually tastes nice. Well I th- I think the difference for us is that cheese is the focal point of the dish, yeah. you know, and so really you start by looking at what flavors would work well with that cheese. It's not the the reverse mentality of oh we've got this dish let's just grate loads of cheese on top of it to make it tasty i think playing to the key strengths of those specific cheeses and building a dish that works around those flavors is key and i i think with lots of cheese it's less is more you know we've always we've always i think as a business struggled this struggle with this balance between you know giving people those kind of more stringy melty indulgent cheese dishes and then also the kind of more refined cheese dishes that maybe don't have that instagram cheese pool but to the honesty of that cheese one of the things that i love about the book is that it's not just recipes you know to get your frying pan out but there's a, an amazing section about um cheese boards which is an art and i feel like i never quite appreciated how orchestral the art of putting together a cheese board is but please do share with us what makes an amazing cheese board and it so happens that we do have a cheese board in front of us so perhaps we could kind of make our own as we go whilst you give us some instructions shall i shall i unwrap and yeah, cut and Matthew talk. can yes please talk? i feel like me and patrick are fairly opinionated when it comes to <laughs> assembling a cheese board and i think for us it's the real focus understandably should be the cheese and i think we're not um we are not massive fans of the idea of creating cheese boards with 120 different accompaniments every different dried fruit and nut under the sun i think for us it's about really good cheese and unique kind of individual pairings for each of those cheeses. So in the book we we there's four or f- I think four or five different cheese boards and each of the cheeses comes with like a unique pairing or a unique condiment. So we've got Dilton with like a dark chocolate brownie, we've got another soft blue cheese with a kind of flapjack, we've got charred leeks with kafili, we've got poached pears. Yeah, so it's it's kind of getting these really interesting and quite unique condiments which I think really kind of elevate the cheese. Here's a bit of your, the, the lovely cheddar to start with. Matthew, maybe you could give us a bit of a an expert's like analysis of what actually it tastes like. What's so beautiful about proper cheddar and like we were saying with the kafili is you get this real real difference in flavor from from beneath the rind all the way down to the nose of the cheese. For me it's down by the nose you've got um it's a bit fresher, a bit younger. It's actually quite quite young for an Isle of Mulch cheddar. Normally it's it's a lot more spicy, it has a bit more a bit more brothiness going on. What I love about clothman cheddars is the texture. So if you if you get a a, a block cheddar, they're often quite sort of 
plasticine, almost a bit like putty or something, because they've been wrapped in plastic. They're still quite moist and have high moisture content. But with a cloth-bound cheddar, you lose quite a lot of moisture during maturation through the cloth. And so they have lovely snap and sort of... When you bite into them, you leave an imprint of your tooth. It's what we call toothsome, you know, mm -hmm. texture. And what is great, like Matthew says, you know, if you if you if you cut a long slice from the middle to the edge, it will taste quite different. You know, if you taste right up near the rind, it's much more earthy, and you can almost taste the cellar, that musty kind of cavey. You can sometimes smell the cloth that the cheese is wrapped in. We take the cloth off before we sell it. But you can sort of get all of that. But like Matthew says, the middle tends to have a bit more acidity, a bit more bite, that sort of tang's probably not the right word, but a kind of freshness. Mm, yeah, a real um, freshness. And on this ballet of flavours, we, we will go and enjoy the rest by ourselves. Thank you so much for coming in, um, Matthew and Patrick. Thank, Thank you. you. We're halfway through January and many people take this month as an opportunity to try giving up alcohol after a fun-filled festive period. Whether you're taking dry January as a New Year challenge or the start of a more permanent lifestyle change, finding alternatives that actually taste good can be a challenge. Using his knowledge from over 40 years of research on how alcohol affects the brain, Professor Nutt co-founded Sentia Spirits, an alcohol-free alternative that is designed to capture the relaxation that comes with drinking without the alcohol. Monocle's Mariella Bevan spoke to Professor Nutt to find out how it works. Firstly, I wanted to know more about your background because you have a long career in researching the effects of alcohol and other drugs on the brain. And can you just tell us a little bit more about what led you to this point of creating Sentia Spirits? So I'm a doctor. I'm a, actually a psychiatrist. And I've been practicing psychiatry now for nearly 50 years. And in that time, I've seen an awful lot of problems due to alcohol. In fact, for two years in the 1980s, I ran the alcohol research ward in the National Institute of Health Research in America, in, in Washington, D.C. So I spent most of my professional career trying to help people deal with problems of addictions, in particularly that to alcohol. And uh, for the first half of that career, I was looking at ways of reducing the harms of drinking and, and thinking about how we could help people get through withdrawal and stop craving and then in 2004, I was leading the government's foresight program. That year was focusing on the brain science in relation to drugs and addiction. And during that program, came to the conclusion that actually, because alcohol was such a complicated and broad-acting toxic substance to the brain and body, you couldn't really ever get a proper antidote or you couldn't protect people against the harms. And I came up with the idea that maybe the solution was to find an alternative. And I spent the last nearly 20 years now trying to do that. On the front of Santia bottles, it says GABA spirit. Can you just explain in layman's terms what GABA is and why it is the main component of these spirits? In 2004, I wrote a paper saying alcohol alternatives, a target for psychopharmacology. It was a provocative piece and I got quite a few experts from around the world to comment on it. And in that paper, I laid out the science at the time, which suggested that the effects of the first drink, the relaxation, the sociability, the uh, conviviality, the breaking down of social barriers, getting people to talk at parties, was almost certainly due to alcohol enhancing GABA in the brain. So GABA is 
one of the two major neurotransmitters in the brain. GABA is the transmitter which keeps the brain under control. It keeps the brain calm. It allows you to think and function optimally. And for most of us, social situations are associated with a bit of anxiety. And we know that GABA can calm anxiety. So we have targeted the GABA system as a, a way of giving the effects that most people want from alcohol. So when you drink alcohol, what effect does the alcohol have on the GABA neurotransmitter? So the first thing that alcohol does when you drink is to turn on the GABA system in the brain, which is the system that relaxes you. And we, we believe that that's why people first turned to alcohol. People started eating rotting fruit or fermenting honey because they enjoyed the fact it chilled them out. But then we got more sophisticated at making alcohol. As the amount of alcohol in your brain goes up, then it begins to turn on other transmitter systems, like the dopamine system, which gets you loud and, uh, and aggressive. We decided that the way to give people what they wanted from drinking was just to target the GABA system. And it turns out the GABA system is very complex and sophisticated. And that means if we are clever in our developments, we can target just those parts of the GABA system which work in the, those parts of the brain which we want to dampen down to relax us in, in social situations. And that's what we've managed to do. And that's where Sentia Spirits comes in. So can you explain a little bit more about what the effect of Sentia Spirit is? Does it make you feel drunk? So Sentia Spirit is a cocktail of herbs. It actually contains herbs which increase the effect of GABA in the brain. And it also contains herbs which facilitate the uptake of those ingredients in the GABA herbs so they get into the body faster and into the brain faster. So it's a, it's a sophisticated cocktail of traditional herbs which have been used for centuries, maybe millennia, and which we know to be safe, but also to have relaxing properties. So that's what it is in its essence. But of course, Sentia is also a drink. And our flavor expert, who's called Vanessa, Vanessa Jacobi, she has tuned the herbs and added extra herbs so that it's, it's an extremely flavorsome drink that also has the ingredients which give you those uh, effects we want in the brain. So I wanted to talk a little bit about flavor as well, because you have Sentia Red and you have Sentia Black, and they're both quite different. Sentia Red is more of a berry flavour and it helps you relax and socialise. And then Sentia Black has a kind of smooth, earthy finish like a bourbon. It's more spicy and it's designed to help you focus and give you that drive. So can you talk a little bit about the different approaches to Sentia Red and Sentia Black and how they were formulated differently? Yes. Yeah, so essentially within every Sentia drink, the core ingredients target the GABA system. But we can modify the taste and also the effect by adding other herbs. Vanessa has developed the, this new drink called Black, which has different herbs. And actually, the, those different herbs give a very different flavor. Sentia is designed as a vermouth. You can drink vermouths neat. You can drink them with ice. But many people use them as the basis of longer drinks. And, and we encourage people to experiment with the sentias. So with the red, we find that tonics, either plain or, or flavoured tonics, go very well, but also it goes extremely well in other drinks. It can go into Coke, it can go into orange juice, apple juice. It's, it, you can basically put it into any drink you like the flavour of, if the vermouth flavour is perhaps uh, too strong for you. With black, we've discovered 
it goes exceptionally well in ginger beer and that's become a, a really enormously popular cocktail. So finally, what is the most important takeaway you want people to have when they think of Sentia? Yeah, I think it's really important to say that what we have tried to do with Sentia is is to try to give people a drink that they actually enjoy drinking. Um, currently, you either drink alcohol, which we know can be damaging and, and harmful, or you drink non-alcoholic drinks, which basically are just flavoured water. And Sentia and, and, and the other drinks we're hoping to develop in the long term are designed to be the missing link between those two extremes. So a drink which is pleasurable, but also gives people the kind of experience that they are looking for with a small amount of alcohol. And we call them functional drinks as opposed to non-alcoholic drinks because they do actually have a functional effect. The majority of people notice the effect of center is to do what they want, which is to chill, relax, make them more convivial, more sociable. And we can even show that now we've got brain imaging data, which shows, you know, we get an effect in the brain in those parts of the brain, which are involved in social interaction. So we're really quite proud of the fact that we've invented something will help people achieve what they want in life, but not have to recourse to alcohol to get it. So it's uh, it's been a long road, but we're at least enough down the path to say that actually the road was worth starting on. I'm super happy that Mariella is actually joining me in the studio now with some of the goods themselves, because I'm very curious to hear and possibly taste what the actual effect of these drinks are. I mean, can you guide us through what we've got here in the studio? Yes. So we have two spirits here, both called GABA spirits, as you can see on the front. We have Sentia Red, which has a more of a rich and floral, botanical berry flavour. And then we also have Sentia Black, which is more of a spicier finish. It's more like a bourbon. It's warmer. It's supposed to help give you more focus and confidence. There's also some guidance on what kind of cocktails you should have with them. So with Sentia Red, you can have it with a tonic, you can have an elderflower spritz, a Negroni, and then with Sentia Black, I think it's quite nice with ginger beer or rum and coke kind of thing, which is what we're going to be having today. So, should we start with Sentia Red? Of course, please. Let's chill out first and then go for the upper later. Go for the focused one. Okay, I'll give you some ice here and then we will pour some in there. It's about 25 mil. I think that's about, so it looks about right. And it's then we, really dark in colour, actually. Yeah, it's like a deep burgundy almost. It looks like blackberry juice. Yeah, it does, isn't it? And it's, um, it's definitely kind of a warm berry looking colour. Tell me what you think of that. So we've got some tonic in there. Mm. It's very aromatic mm. and it does have a real complexity to it. So should we, should we have a taste? We have a yeah, smell. let's toast. Let's go for it. That is delicious. Mm. Quite bitter. Yeah, it's more um, bitter than I expected it to be when I first tried it. But you can definitely taste that kind of berry component very strongly at the forefront, I'd say. But it's not a slight taste because I feel like a lot of the time with non-alcoholic spirits, you feel like you're lacking a bit of the back taste that we are used to associating with alcohol, where there is a bit of a lingering taste at the end. So obviously right now it's possibly a bit too soon for us to feel the effects. But when you did have it last time, did you feel like 
you could feel a bit of an effect or is yeah. it all placebo? <laughs> no, I, I think I definitely could feel a certain effect. I think maybe part of the problem with these sort of drinks, I was thinking a lot about how I was feeling. And so then you kind of going inwards a little bit. But when I started drinking a bit more, it definitely felt relaxing and it's definitely something different to the kind of normal alcohol free um it's something a little bit different and a little bit extra well i'm having a lovely relaxing time here with you so <laughs> yeah yeah shall we on. switch it up a bit and go towards the confident part of uh, of our sit down yeah so this is santia black the kind of things you can make are kind of dark and stormy espresso martini even you can make with this there's definitely a different taste so i will give you some ice and some Coke. Maybe you want to try it without um, tonic let's have, first. Let's have, let's have it neat to begin yeah, with. Yeah, let's have it neat. Oh, wow. That is very strange. <laughs> very, 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 very strange. Kind of sour, earthy. I, I can't pinpoint it to any specific plant that I have, you know, encountered in my life. But it's almost like bark. Interesting. Or okay. resin. It's um, it's definitely got a spice to it. Let's try it with some coke and see if that um, tones it. things up. It's much more mellow like this. <laughs> yeah, but it does have this kind of resiny taste to it a lot. Reminds me of kind of Greek wines, Greek kind of resined wines mm. like this, particularly with a bit more sweetness in it. It does marry really, really lovely with a cola. Yeah, I think, I mean, most people necessarily wouldn't have like rum, say, neat. So I think it, it works well with a mixer and that's kind of probably the most important thing, I'd say. Well, very much cheers to that. And I'm sorry that we only got to the focus and um, confidence bit at the very end of the interview, <laughs> but we got there in the end. Exactly. Thanks cheers. very much. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. A startup in Greenland has begun shipping glacier ice to cocktail bars in the UAE in a bid to boost the island's exports. The firm, Arctic Ice, harvests the ice from Greenland's fjords and then ships it 9,000 nautical miles in refrigerated shipping containers for use in upscale watering holes. Despite criticism that the practice is not environmentally friendly, the company promises they only use carbon-neutral vessels and that the initiative will support local communities. South Korea's parliament has passed a bill to outlaw the trade of dog meat. The ruling aims to end a centuries-old practice which in recent years has become increasingly unpopular as concern over animal rights has grown. Passed in a near-unanimous vote, the legislation will ban the breeding, selling and slaughtering of dogs for their meat from 2027. And finally, Berlin-based food delivery company HelloFresh has been fined for sending millions of spam messages to its customers. A 2022 investigation by the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK found that 79 million emails and 1 million text messages were sent out to customers over a seven-month period. The inquiry declared the company's campaign was a clear breach of trust and has ordered HelloFresh to pay a fine of £140,000. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. According to a recent report, in the last year, Austrian soya bean production increased by 22% compared to the year before. In Vienna, the city-owned organic food brand Wiener Gusto is adding soybeans to their range. But despite this, there's still a lot of misconceptions about soy in Austria. 
Monaco's correspondent in Vienna, Alexei Korolov, looks back at the history of soy in Austria and talks to the curators of a recent exhibition aimed at tackling the Austrian mistrust of homegrown soy. On the morning of May the 1st, 1873, thousands of people gathered in Vienna's Praterpark for the grand opening of the city's first world exposition. Among them was a celebrated agriculturalist called Friedrich Haberland. He wasn't there for the show, though. Haberland's speciality was seeds. And as soon as the formalities were over, he headed straight for the pavilion of Japan. Because alongside intricate lacquerwork and porcelain, the Japanese were exhibiting something else, something that Haberland couldn't wait to get his hands on. And actually, this is where the soybean story of Vienna soybeans. started. A great patriot of Austria-Hungary, Haberland saw his duty as improving the nation's nutrition. And soybeans seemed just the ticket. Writing a few years later, he said, No other legume nourishes so many people and has such great nutritional value and multiple food uses. He was right. What he didn't realize, perhaps, was that it wasn't just a matter of nutritional value. It was also a matter of public perception. And so, 150 years on, domestically grown soybeans have yet to gain widespread acceptance in Austria. Hello, my name is Anke Noack and I am the owner of Beyond Project. It's an agency for innovative solutions. And when thinking about why is it so close, at the same time feeling so strange to us, we really quickly came to the theme of Heimat. What is Heimat? It doesn't motherland. Motherland, yeah. Because one point is it is growing in our motherland, in the Austrian motherland, but at the same time it feels strange, it feels Asian for us. Last year, Anke Noak teamed up with Olivia Ahn. I've studied architecture and I'm also a professional dancer. And Vienna's municipal food brand, Wiener Gusto. And together they staged an installation at Vienna Design Week called Heimat, the Bean, the City and the Arts. Anke Noak. We just built a soybean field just at Vienna Design Week. So we actually, we had a room where we built a field with real soybeans. And it was basically like a field. So you had the soybeans, you had a little bench where you could sit and watch the field grow. And in the background, we had a screen. And before that, we filmed for one day, one soy field, soybean field in Vienna growing. Olivia on. How can we kind of show that food not only is what we eat, but also that food is our culture? Um, so yeah, we just kind of wanted to, to present this controversy and show different, different other vegetables like the pumpkin or the potato or the plum, because all of those things um, we feel like they could be from Austria or Germany or our cultural region, because we use them so daily in our kitchen, but actually they are, for example, the plum is from Syria and the potato is from South America. And we just found it really interesting that all those things we feel so close with and we connotate them with our home, kind of, but they also aren't from here. But provenance is not the only problem. Ankenoak. If something is always seen as a substitute for something, it's always just second choice. There was quite early a soy soybean cookbook, but yeah, 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 but it's it was also used as a lot of times they substituted 
um, other ingredients with soy. So they used, it, for example, the soy flour. How do we make something strange our own? And we said, okay, create new memories. And to create new memories, we need recipes. So also in our exhibition, we gave a QR code where people could download five recipes and we try to mix them up. So one recipe is, for example, an edamame salad uh, with a steak, or we had um, smoked salmon with a tofu waffle, which is actually really, really good. In the end, I think what was super interesting to see also for myself, the soybean is not, it's not a new creation. Olivier An. But it definitely came with a change of perspective, and that was, that was the interesting part. It's not something we invented or gave to the people. It just was there and we just had to kind of show the people and also myself that we can use it as any other product. In many ways, this is exactly what Austrian soybean pioneer Friedrich Habelan was saying 150 years ago. Anke Noack and Olivier An's installation will not have changed Austrian minds overnight, but it is a sign that Habelan's pioneering vision is finally being recognized. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Cheese by the Moldy Peaches. Thanks for listening and until next week. Took the cheese. The insider, that's where the cheese.